0: to him to be washed, come to him to be comforted, and to come to him to experience joy without end. Go with me to Matthew chapter 11, and I'll begin with verse 28. Jesus has come to me, all who were weary. Many times we go day after day doing the will of Jesus, laboring in his vineyards. And then we get to that point where we're weary. Jesus has come. Sometimes we're so tired and exhausted. He's our good shepherd, and he knows that we need rest. When we need rest, we go to Jesus, and he's the one that refreshes our souls and gives gives us strength to keep walking the journey. And at other times, the weariness of the soul can be emotionally. We're praying for loved ones. We're going through situations and we're going through storms. And we feel like we don't have the strength to put one foot in front of the other. But Jesus says, come. He's going to give you the strength to go through. When you feel like you can't make it, you feel like it's so overwhelming. You think maybe I can't face tomorrow. Jesus says, come. And as you hear these words, just think, when you're weary physically, when you're tired emotionally, where do you go? Go to Jesus. Jesus doesn't want us to be loaded with burdens, trying to fix one problem after the next. But he says, come. Verse 27 says, all things have been committed to me by my father. No one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. When we walk through these periods of our life, we're retired, we're burdened, We don't know what to do. We want to give up. This is a very precious invitation from Jesus. And when we go to him and we take his yoke, we have access to the Father and we have access to the Son, Jesus. And when he comes to our hearts, it's not just Jesus, but it's Jesus and the Father. And he wants to create such intimacy in those times Where we're weak, we're vulnerable. Jesus wants to be our safety and our strength. And as He creates intimacy in our hearts and strengthens us for the journey, that a devil will not come and blow us away because we're tired. And sometimes, some of us, when we get tired, harsh words come out of our mouths. When we load it down, all we can see is the load. We don't see the purpose of Jesus. We don't see how the Spirit is moving, where, he, where He's telling us to go. Jesus has come. He'll give you wise, and He'll give you the strength to walk through what he has asked you to walk through. And if you've gone off the path today, come back to Jesus. His heart is gentle, and he's humble. And when the Father and the Son comes and bears their yoke upon us, it's easy and light. We get eyesight, and we know what to do. We get the strength and the joys in our heart. And we're not loaded down, but we trust Jesus. And we say, Lord, how? This is how I'm feeling. Can you come and refresh my spirit? So I invite you today, take the yoke of Jesus. Don't go somewhere else. Don't take on the weight of the world. But go to Jesus and let him bring the intimacy and all that Him and the Father will give to us. I welcome you to the National Prayer Chapel.
1: The message today is entitled, The Gift of Shame. The Gift of Shame. Let's pray. Mighty God of heaven, it is you who comes and corrects and instructs I pray that you would open our hearts and open our ears that we could hear and understand. In the name of Jesus, amen. I have been deep in prayer and fasting over an issue that I have to have a breakthrough. We have to have a breakthrough. And the issue is that on Pilgrim's Progress, I go day after day, I pour out my heart, I share the gospel of Jesus, and the response is minimal. Why? I struggle with that. And I've talked with some of you, and you have said to me pastor there's there's an indifference in people's hearts there's an indifference. well, what causes the indifference in their hearts what is the what is the issue of indifference well If something makes a difference to me, it's because I need it. We're not indifferent, guys, when we need a hammer, if we can't find it. Or we need a tape and we can't find it. We're not indifferent about that. How many times I've had to go get a yardstick when I wanted a tape measure. So finally, I always put my tape measure now in the same place. So I know exactly, and not only do I have one tape measure, I have two there. Because I'm apt to take it and use it and leave it somewhere. So I have two tape measures, the same identical tapes. And I keep them in the same place so that when I need it, I have it. The same with my screwdrivers and my my pliers and my, my tools. I have always in the same place. It wasn't always like that. I used to spend as much time looking for the right tool as it took me to accomplish the task. I'm not indifferent any longer to where I put my tools. It matters to me. What brings indifference? I don't have a sense of need. It's not life and death. Well, what would bring indifference about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Indifference regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ is usually caused by our inability to experience shame. Now, all of my life, I've heard preachers. And teachers talk about how harmful shame is to us. I want to tell you just the opposite. Shame is the gift of God in response to our sin. And if we do not feel shame about the sin of our heart, we will not turn from it. Nothing will change. We will be indifferent. Whatever I say will have no meaning to you if what I say is not needed by you. Most of us don't pray unless we have to pray. And God brings circumstances into my life where if I don't pray, I will die. I feel like that now. There has to be a breakthrough of godliness in this city, in the lives of men and women. But if it's not needed, how do we begin to deal with this? And some pastors that I've carefully read in the area of revival, and one man you may listen to sometimes by the name of Washer, He teaches that you have to use the law. Well, I've questioned, how do I use the law? How do I uncover the law? So part of what I've done this week is I've thought about people and places in Scripture where there was an experience of shame. And of course, the first and primary experience of shame is when Adam and Eve have reached out and taken for themselves what they wanted and have denied Jesus. They have said, we will determine for ourselves what is right and wrong. We will be God. And so they reached out and they took the fruit, they ate it, And then they looked at each other and they recognized they were naked and they were ashamed. So sin automatically brings a sense of undoneness, a sense of sin, a sense of shame into our hearts. I remember when I was a little boy and I would steal something like candy from my mother. I felt very ashamed about that the first time, but then I got away with it. So I decided to go back and hit it again. Got away with it a second time. And basically felt no shame about stealing the candy because there was plenty of candy there. And it was there for the taking, even though mama said, no, wait, it's for grandma when she comes. But it was in a big dish piled up and I could take one piece and nobody'd see the difference. And it wasn't until I went to take another piece that I saw that the candy had greatly reduced. And I said, has this candy gone so quickly? I didn't know that my brother was stealing it too. And I then was not shameful. I was then concerned that my mom would catch me. There's a difference between shame and fear that mama will catch you. And sure enough, mama caught us, lined us up. I had to confess. And then came the whipping. And Mama said, I know you confessed, and I forgive you, Raymond. But to help you remember the next time you're tempted to take that candy, I'm going to have to spank you. Well, I didn't like that at all. And she laid it on thoroughly. Well, Adam and Eve take this fruit. They say, we're God now. We'll decide for ourselves. And then they go hide in the bushes because they're ashamed of their nakedness before God. But what if God had not said anything to them about taking that fruit? What if he'd said, you know, I understand you were hungry and it looked good. Don't worry about it. Would they have gone and taken more fruit? Of course they would have. And the scriptures say that to keep them from taking more fruit and taking then fruit from the tree of life, they were sent out of the garden, they lost their place, and they had to work by the sweat of their brow. They were forgiven, but there was a consequence for their actions. And shame was very real because now they had lost their home. They'd lost everything they treasured. They'd lost their free food. It was no longer provided for them. So shame comes, but if we continue doing the very thing that we need to be ashamed of, and there's no punishment, soon the sense of shame will depart from us. And then we're going to hear people say, shame is false. Nobody should feel shame. In fact, Most are saying in the left side of the political spectrum, there's no such thing as sin unless it's being a Republican. Unless it's being a conservative. Well, pretty soon we have a nation where we can burn the flag. We can curse and swear. We can have free sex. We can do whatever we want to do, and there's no penalty for that. Because we live in a culture where there is such an abundance of provision. We can pretty well get away with whatever we want to get away with, and we can think whatever we want to think, and we can act in any way we want to act, because we live in a very permissive culture. And so as we walk in that way, Shame is lost. And we no longer mind if we don't keep our word. My father was a businessman. And there were accounts that were owed to him. He kept track of what those accounts were. But he did not have the people who owed those accounts sign anything. It was simply a handshake agreement. Yes, I owe this. And yes, I will pay it by such and such a date. Well, today you wouldn't dare do that. Because we're not a part of a culture where keeping your word is important. If you say to me, yes, I will be there. And then you're not there. Well, it's no big deal, Pastor. I I just couldn't make it. Oh, really, your word is no big deal. You're not talking now about me. You're talking about you. You're saying that when you say something, it doesn't matter. You're saying you don't matter then. If your word is not worth keeping, it means you're not worth respecting. Am I missing something? If I say, Jesus, I belong to you, and I walk out and do things that show I belong to the devil, like the story I shared with the children, I've just utterly destroyed all respect for myself as a man. And part of where I'm really struggling is, I see us living in a culture where people are more like animals than men. Grabbing and growling whatever they want, whatever their hand can take a hold of, without regard for the moral understanding of what that will mean to the family. And so, infidelity, cheating on your wife or your husband, cheating on your boss, Stealing. No big deal. It's just what happens everywhere. Well, it's very interesting to me that Christianity began to flow into the Roman Empire. And at first they tried to kill these Christians because these Christians we're completely confounding the basic moral values of Rome. Rome was utterly wicked. And and please, may I say this? I hope you can understand it. Almost all sin has its root in sex. You may think I'm strange to say that, but it's very true. We are sexual creatures, and a part of being a sexual creature is the determination that I have the right to take what I want to take. Sexual sin goes far beyond the act of sex. It is the inner God part of us that the Heavenly Father gave to us so that we could produce life. You understand, when we go to heaven, we're no longer going to produce life. This was a temporary giving to us until we take our rightful place in the kingdom above as his wife, as his sons and daughters. So God gave to us this incredible gift of a man and woman coming together and procreating, producing offspring. But if that's not respected if we live like the Romans did. And what happened in the Roman Empire is the Christians began to infiltrate this empire, and suddenly the sexual mores of the empire began to be undone, and men and women began to say, that is wrong, we won't do that. And when you came to the believers, it was very clear they would have a person standing at the door. And when you came in, they didn't greet you and hand you a program. They greeted you and said, are you washed in the blood of Jesus? Are you clean or are you walking in sin? If you're walking in sin, you're not allowed in this place. This is for holy people only. Well, that'd be shocking, wouldn't it? If today when you came to the front door, the greeter had said to you, are you sold out to Jesus Christ? Are you clean? Or are you walking in wickedness? Evangelism was done outside of that special gathering of the holy people. Ananias and Sapphira, The fear of God fell on the Christian church. They died because they cheated. And God wanted the church to know right at the get-go, look, you are called to be a holy people. Don't play with me. You are called to lay down your life. You are called to walk with integrity. So if you sin against God, by what you watch, by what you say, by what you do, and you have no overwhelming sense of guilt and shame, it's because you have seared your heart. It's because you've done this so many times and gotten away with it that you think it is of no consequence. And part of what God has done, and it's such a magnificent thing in one way, is he has put off the judgment upon the sinner, because in his kindness and in his mercy, he wants to draw all men to himself. But the judgment is coming. The judgment is coming. And so I'm praying for a sense of guilt and a sense of shame in America for what we have done, for what the Christian church has done, that we could no longer walk in whatever way we choose to walk and have no sense of responsibility, of guilt, of shame, that instead we would see and understand how we have offended a holy God and not make him into some permissive marshmallow, sweet and sticky and soft. That's not who God is. He is loving. But in his love, he says, stop walking in darkness. Now, there is forgiveness. And I'm very grateful for that forgiveness for i have sinned much against the holy god of heaven and the only way i can stand before you today is that i have a great deal of of shame and guilt and the lord has come in his kindness to me he has wiped away my shame But it also means I've spent a long time walking in the wilderness because of my sin. You don't just walk away from your sin and say, oh, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven, everything's cool. Oh, right, everything is forgiven, everything is cool. Now, suffer your punishment. The punishment is not removed simply by confessing your sin. There are consequences for sin. There are natural consequences that are extremely painful. Some of you have not walked in this desert because you repented, you said, I'm free, I'm clean. Now I can go live my life any way I want to. And you've gone out in the shallowness of your own heart, and you've refused to walk by faith before God. You've taken for granted the mercy and kindness of Jesus. But any of you who are thoughtful today will recognize that you have had to walk in some hard places as a consequence for your sin. We cannot belittle the sin of our heart. And one of the clearest examples of that is the story of King David. King David has gotten fat and lazy. He doesn't want to go out and fight anymore. He wants to send his general out with the army. It's springtime and he has spring fever. And he goes out on the roof of his house, his palace. A very dangerous thing to do, by the way, because like Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to be tempted to say, look at this great kingdom and it all belongs to me and I'm somebody. Well, he's out there on that roof and he looks over the edge and he sees a beautiful woman in the neighborhood. She's taking a bath. And instead of quickly turning his face and walking to the other side of the roof, he stands there with his binoculars and watches. And then he sends someone. Who is that woman? Who is that woman? The wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah is not a Jewish man. He's a Gentile that came into the family. Go get her for me. That person, that man, should have looked at the king straight in the eye and said, do you understand, king, that if you take her, we're going to have to stone you to death because that's the command of God. He might have forfeited his life But he would have saved the king. A lot of pain and a lot of anguish. And Israel, a lot of pain and a lot of anguish. I praise God for people who will stand up and say, don't do it. We need people in our lives like that. Who will stand up and say, stop before the judgment of God falls on you. He was already in heat go get her for me, brought her, took her to bed, violating one of his key strong men, violating it, committing adultery. Uriah now had the right to kill the king, according to the law. But Uriah doesn't know because he's out fighting the king's battle. Is this despicable to you? This is despicable behavior. There's no excuse for it. There's no justifying it. It's wrong. It's sin. But David, he sends her home. And then she sends him word a short time after that. King, I'm pregnant. And now he has to have a quick fix so he's not uncovered. So the sin compounds on the sin, one sin on top of another. So if you ask somebody, what sin are you committing? If they were honest, they would have to say, what list are you talking about? Because sin compounds one stone on another stone until there's a whole fortress of sin built up. Now, I don't know what sin I'm responsible for. You're responsible for it all. But because I got away with the first one, I think I'll get away with the second one. And I'll get away with the third one, and I'll keep adding sin on sin and sin. And what happens in revival is God shows us suddenly, all at once, the whole pile of sin. And it breaks a man. It breaks a woman. And all they can do is lay on their face and weep. What if God showed you the fullness of your heart today? Would it break you? very interesting to me that there are people in revival who when revival come, they're not on their faces praying and weeping because they've done that in the privacy of their own prayer closet and they don't have a pile of sin to deal with. So when the Holy Spirit comes and turns on his spotlight, it reveals a righteous man or a righteous woman. What would that spotlight look like on you today? Would there be a pile of sin? Or would you be washed and made clean? Or are you just unconscious and don't really know? King David immediately sent a message Have Uriah, the the Hittite, come home. I want a report on the war. Uriah came to David, and David asked him, how's the war going? After he brought the report, he said, go down to your house and wash your feet. And he sent food after him. So from the king's table, a feast was sent. Uriah, go home and feast with your wife. Drink the wine. Enjoy your wife. Have a wonderful evening. no. Uriah won't do that. He has a conscience. Instead, he sleeps with the king's men. And of course, David wants to know, why didn't you go down to your wife, your beautiful wife? Obviously, if he can get Uriah to go down, they wouldn't know whose baby it was. Except I think God would have made it look exactly like David. Moriah, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Whoa, a man of integrity. His word means something. His yes is yes, and his no is no. A man righteous before God. Stay one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So he ate with Uriah. He broke bread. With the husband of the woman he's violated. And David got him drunk, hoping that if he were drunk, he would lose his sense of value. He would lose his integrity. You know, alcohol affects the frontal lobes where our conscience is. But Uriah went out and slept on a mat among his master's servants. He didn't go home. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. This is found in 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter, verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fierce, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. David did this in cold blood because he had no shame. He thought he could get away with it. What have you imagined that you could get away with? Do you understand? We don't get away with anything with God. There's a price to pay, and we will pay it if we take advantage of the mercy and the grace of God. He has no guilt. He only has a desire to protect himself and hide himself to maintain his position. And so he sends a letter of execution with the man who is to be executed. What do you think Joab thought when he read that letter? Well, Joab was an unrighteous man too. Joab was a murderer too. He probably thought to himself, okay, this self-righteous king, he can't hold it over my head anymore. He's as bad as I am. Now we've got a combo. We can run this kingdom. Had not counted on God stepping in. By the way, do you know how Joab died? After David died, Solomon took the throne. David had told Solomon, take that man's life. So when Joab heard that Solomon was king, he ran to the temple, grabbed the horns of the altar, said, I'm not going to leave here when they came for him. And they killed him right there. In the presence of God. David should have been killed the same way. By the mercy of God, he repented. And might I add, he did not repent gracefully. He did not repent Of his own free will. God had to send a prophet and confront him. He takes Bathsheba and marries her. Can you imagine being married to this woman? Knowing the sin that lies between them? I mean, do they have a conversation one evening about how wonderful Uriah was? I suspect not. There were things they could not talk about. And so we see in their relationship that it's not an intimate relationship as the years go by. Chapter 12, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep. Remember, David is a shepherd, so this is right along his line. This is going to capture his heart. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food. It drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had just come to him. So how would you feel if somebody comes and takes your pet dog or your favorite cat? Your pet! David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Boy, it's easy to pass judgment. In your self-righteous wickedness. God set a trap for this man and he leaped in with both feet. God will set a trap for you. If you refuse to feel guilt, if you refuse to... To repent of your sin, God will set a trap for you. I'm terrified for some of you wondering what the trap's going to look like. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And Nathan turned to David and pointed his finger and said, You are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I appointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Because he thought he could. He saw God's wonderful love for him. He saw the mercy of God. He saw the victory of God in his life. And he thought, I can get away with anything. I'm the king. I'm the beloved of God. So the Lord tells him the child, the child that you've had with Bathsheba will die. And David now feels deep shame and deep guilt because his child is going to die because of his sin. And he goes in before the Lord and he stretches out, he takes off his kingly robes, he lays down on that floor and day and night he's there for 7 days all he can do is weep before the lord and beg for his his precious son's life but the word of god is true and the child dies How do we face the death of what we hold most precious? Because of our gross sin. Our refusal to feel shame. Our refusal to repent and make it right. Our pride gets in the way. We want this and we want that. And if I do that, I won't have what I want. And I have to have what I want. Really? So four sons of David die as a result of this sin. As his family history moves along, four sons die. And then you come to this incredible story of Absalom... Declaring himself king in Hebron. With the leaders of the men, 200 of them. And they all join in the rebellion against King David. Verse 13, a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And he knows the hearts of the men have turned against him because of what he did with Bathsheba. His chief counselor, Ahithophel, joins in the rebellion. Ahithophel was Bathsheba's uncle. There is bitterness in the family. There's bitterness in the family. David knows he is responsible for all of this misery. David said to his officials, this is chapter 15, verse 14, 2 Samuel 15, verse 14, Then David said to all of his officials, who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin upon us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, Your servants are ready to do whatever our Lord the king chooses. Please understand me. Your sin does not just affect you. It affects your whole family. It affects your friends. It affects the whole circle you are a part of. When you lie, when you cheat, when you don't keep your word, when you are a man or woman of dishonor. It affects everybody in your circle of influence. They didn't have to flee. David had a standing army that could have wiped Absalom out with one swat. But he knew he was guilty before God, and he knew he could not hold on to the kingship. Please, this is the difference between Joab and King David. David was not going to continue reaching out his hand and taking what he wanted Instead, he relinquished it. He opened his hands and he said, I'm not going to hang on to my world. I'm not going to hang on. I'm going to give it to Jesus. I'm going to give it to the Lord God of heaven, the Almighty. And he will decide what will happen here. He casts himself on the mercy of God. The whole countryside is weeping. They can't believe that King David, their beloved, is departing. Verse 25, the whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by the king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on toward the desert. The desert is where God takes us when we have sinned against him. It's in the desert where God begins to woo our hearts. It's in the desert where we begin to understand righteousness. They took the ark with them and the king said, no, no, no. Take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready let him do to me whatever seems good to him you understand until we come to that place our sin cannot truly be dealt with until we give up everything into the hand of god and we say look i'm not going to hang on anymore i'm not going to hang on to my lifestyle i'm not going to hang on to my to my friends i'm not going to hang on to anything i'm going to put it all in jesus hands and if he's pleased with me He'll establish me. Now this picture is so painful and so sweet. In verse 30, after he has said this, and after he has sent the Ark of the Covenant back, after he's claimed no righteousness for himself, He knows he has sinned against God and his heart is broken. David continued up, verse 30, the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. This great king the greatest king of Israel, the one whom our Messiah is named after, the son of David. This king, walking up that stony path in bare feet, weeping as he goes. And all of the people are with him and they're weeping too. The Lord God of heaven must have looked down on this. And he must have called his angels and said, Look at this. This is incredible. This was exhibit A of what God can do in a man's heart. Utterly breaking the wickedness, utterly breaking the self concern, utterly casting out the pride and the arrogance. Here was a man with a humble, contrite, and broken heart. Please, may I just say this to you? None of us. Please hear, I'm including myself. None of us have yet taken sufficient concern for our sin. Our sin is much greater than we can imagine in the courts of heaven. And the consequences of our sin that have spun out into our lives and into other people's lives and into our family's lives are so devastating. This is years after this horrific act of rebellion against the Almighty. It is still working itself through his soul. Please understand today, God wants to work totally through your heart, your guilt and your shame until you are washed and clean utterly. And the resounding effects of your sin have finally been stilled. And redemption has come. You see the result of your sin in your children and in your children's children. And you wish I could have done it differently. I wish I hadn't been so dumb. A special kind of stupid is what a sinner is. And that defines me. And I have watched through the years the impact of the sin I've committed against God There was a time when I really didn't care. All I cared about was success and building a big church, being somebody. By the grace of God, he stripped that out of my heart and put me on my face and said, that's not what it's about, Ray. Deal with your sin. The people, they've covered their heads, they're weeping. And as they go along, Shimei comes and he curses David and he throws dirt and stone at him. And some of David's men say, Can we go kill that man? Can we take his head off? One swipe of the sword and he's gone. And David said, stop it. If God wants this man to throw dirt on my head and cast stones at me, it's okay. Because if he finds pleasure in me, he'll heal me. See, we could go along as far as, okay, I'll even maybe shed some tears for my sin. But hey, don't let anybody throw stones at me. Any of you experience Shimei? I do in my life. A direct result of my sin. And I think, oh, I'm I'm being unjustly treated. No, I've not been treated nearly what my sin deserved. If you look with me in the book of Psalm, I want to just review quickly a few verses. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. Literally in the Hebrew, come with affection and moan over me, God groan over me, God. Do you need God to groan over you? According to your unfailing love, literally a disposition to do something for me, according to your great compassion, tender pity, blot out my transgressions. And that blot out, literally in the Hebrew, is put me in the tub of laundry and stomp on me until I'm clean. You feel like you've been running around in a washing machine lately? It's just God cleaning you up, His tender mercy groaning over you, I tell you, I've been in the prayer closet recently where I've literally heard the groans of God over me and over the National Prayer Chapel. I'm saying, Spirit of the living God, come and groan over us. Verse 10, Create in me a pure heart O God, The only time that I can remember seeing my father cry, this big six-foot-three hunk of a man, all muscle, is so once in a while in our prayer time he would begin to pray this. And as he would pray this, the tears would run down his face, and I would look at him as a little boy and say, Why is my daddy crying? Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a a broken spirit. Literally, the sacrifices of God are a burst spirit like a balloon that bursts and has many pieces scattered all over. The sacrifices of God are a burst spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise Isaiah 66, 2, this is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Almighty God, would you deal all the way to the bottom with our sin and don't allow us to just walk away like we didn't make the mess? Lord, if you're pleased with the National Prayer Chapel, you will establish us. I stand by faith that you will do the work necessary in our hearts that we could be made righteous before you. Lord, bless your people today. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.